Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and with me are my two wonderful collaborators on this Friday, the 23rd of December. Phil Duffy, who we say is our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremia, who we call our warrior in the courtroom. And uh, we're grateful to be able to bring you what we're calling the American view, that is, the view of the founders of our country regarding politics, regarding government, regarding law, and all of those things. And I want to lead off today's show with a little statement about the political significance of Christmas. Uh, My friend Michael Peruca has written this as, as an attorney said, in their effort to make a point, those who discuss law and government and politics for a living often miss the most critical point. The most critical point of all. So as we celebrate Christmas, this is a good time to take a deep breath and revisit first principles. We should remember the political significance of Christmas. Now, don't get distracted by arguments that early Christians launched into a pre-existing pagan holiday to establish the date for Christmas. That may be true or not, but it's a distraction from what's truly important. The important thing is the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. The birth of the Savior is the most significant political event in human history. And this bears repeating. The birth of Jesus Christ is the most significant political event in the history of the universe. Why? Well, simply put, is because liberty does not and cannot exist absent the acknowledgement of the almighty, omniscient, living and everlasting God of the Bible, whose son is Jesus Christ, the one who created the world entered his own creation and sacrificed his life to cover our sins and to make us presentable before the throne of grace. For liberty to exist in the world, this acknowledgement of Christ's authority must exist in the hearts of the people, and it must be the operating principle of civil government. If it is, then peace on earth will prevail. But to the extent that the hearts of the people are distracted and the civil government forgets that it is a ministry of Jesus Christ, then injustice, chaos, corruption, and tyranny will prevail. And the hearts of people are indeed distracted from this truth. And this is no accident. It is the result of purposeful manipulation of the culture by those who control the major means of communication. The primary tool of this manipulation is the mantra of separation of church and state. Though the ceaseless, through the ceaseless repetition of this voodoo mantra, the culture has been conditioned to consider any public prayer or any private prayer in a public place or any acknowledgement of the Lord Jesus Christ as an inappropriate encroachment of the church. But this is a word trick and a mind trick. The prayer is not a church. An acknowledgement of God's authority over civil government in the form of a prayer before a legislative session or a court session is not a church. It is rather an expression of a political philosophy. And this particular political philosophy is the American political philosophy. It's contained in the Declaration of Independence, which is the, which is the organic law of these United States. Therefore, there is nothing wrong or illegal about such an expression. Indeed, the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as the source of law and government is the very first presupposition of American government. Far from violating any law, worship or acknowledgement of the authority of the Savior of the world through Christmas and nativity displays and public prayer, Ten Commandments displays, and all other forms of Christian witness are consistent with and they are supportive of the American view of law and liberty and are the essence of 
American government. Publicly celebrating the blessed birth of the Savior of the world is not only patriotic, it is the most politically correct thing we can ever do. And that's Michael Anthony Peruca expressing the American view. Well, this morning, let's dive into our next in our series. We're calling the Dirty Dozen. That is 12 Supreme Court cases that deserve an award of infamy. We've looked at things like Dred Scott last week. We looked at Roe v. Wade. And this morning, we're going to look at one you may be a little less familiar with, Kilo v. New London. Come on and bring us your thoughts here this morning, Phil, on Kilo v. New London. The Cornell Law School's Legal Information Institute has the following summary of the case. After approving an integrated development plan designed to revitalize its ailing economy, the city of New London, through its development agent, purchased most of the property earmarked for the project from willing sellers, but initiated condemnation proceedings when petitioners, the owners of the rest of the property, refused to sell. Petitioners, including Suzette Kilo, brought this state court action claiming that the taking of their properties would violate the public use restriction in the Fifth Amendment's takings clause. The trial court granted a permanent restraining order prohibiting the taking of some of the properties, but denying relief as to others. Relying on cases such as Hawaii Housing Authority versus Midkiff and Berman versus Parker, the Connecticut Supreme Court affirmed in part and reversed in part, upholding all of the proposed takings. The Bill of Rights Institute has this explanation of the opinion rendered by the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court ruled on Kelo versus New London in 2005. The court agreed with the city of New London and held that the government could take privately owned land in order to turn it over to a private developer. The court explained that it had rejected literal requirement of the phrase public use in the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. The phrase public use could be interpreted as public benefit. Therefore, the government can take property, uh, can take private property from an individual in order to turn it over to a private developer because the taking will result in economic development for the region. Public benefit today is treated as a synonym for general welfare, which is referenced in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution of the United States. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. The first thing that should be noted about this language is that it is restricted to the specific taxing power of Congress. The language is intended to place some restraints on this power by requiring that congressional spending be limited to general welfare as opposed to individual welfare, such as the purchase of yachts for members of Congress. It makes no reference to takings by individual states and their municipal subdivisions. The more applicable reference in the Constitution is in Amendment 5. Nor shall property, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. The language public use is specific. 
Powerhouse Thesaurus lists 115 synonyms for public use, and general welfare is not to be found among them. There is no way that the English language can be interpreted to assume a similarity. In the absence of any evidence in the founding documents to include the Federalist and the Northwest Ordinance, we must assume that public use means that public use and commercial use are distinct concepts. For example, the Land Ordinance of 1785 specified that five of the 36 lots were reserved for government or public purposes in the Northwest Territory. That is, they were not available for commercial purposes, such as the buying and selling of land by private owners. No doubt James Madison, who had agreed to be the co-author of the Federalist Essays along with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, believed that the Constitution of 1787 had created a federal government of limited enumerated powers. Thus, there was no need for a Bill of Rights in that Constitution. Even Hamilton appeared to take a similar position when he claimed the states and federal government would enjoy concurrent jurisdiction over different objects in reference to the federal government's general power of taxation. Those objects were specifically enumerated in the Constitution, and most specifically in Article 1, Section 8. Ratification of the Constitution had run into serious resistance in Massachusetts, then one of the major states in the United States. The issue was its lack of a Bill of Rights. The promoters of the Constitution of 1787 had indicated that ratification was subject to a yay or nay vote, with no amendments. Initially, Massachusetts delegates to the ratifying convention were unwilling to ratify, but compromised if the new Congress would amend the Constitution with a Bill of Rights soon after government formation. Subsequent ratifying states took similar positions, so it was clear the new Union would founder if the promise were not kept. Madison emerged as a leader in the first House of Representatives, where he immediately addressed the question of a Bill of Rights. On October 2, 1789, President George Washington sent copies of the 12 amendments adopted by the Congress to the states. By December 15, 1791, three-fourths of the states had ratified 10 of these, now known as the Bill of Rights. Among those was what has now become the 10th Amendment, which was drawn up by Madison. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, the 10th Amendment is explicit. There are no implied powers granted to the federal government in the Constitution. This is consistent with Madison's comments in the Federalist Number 41. For what purpose could the enumeration of particular powers be inserted if these and all others were meant to be included in the preceding general power? Nothing is more natural or common than first to use a general phrase and then to explain and qualify it by a recital of particulars. But the idea of an enumeration of powers which neither explain nor qualify the general meaning and can have no other effect than to confound and mislead is an absurdity. Even Hamilton seems to have promoted the idea 
of limited enumerated powers being granted to the federal government in the Constitution with a statement in the Federal's number 84. But a minute detail of particular rights is certainly far less applicable to a Constitution like that under consideration, which is merely intended to regulate the general political interests of the nation than to a Constitution which has the regulation of every species of personal and private concerns. The Federalist Number 84 argues against the need to incorporate a Bill of Rights in the Constitution since only limited and enumerated powers are granted to the federal government. In spite of this clear intent, Hamilton made this statement in his report on manufacturers to Congress on December 5, 1791. The national legislature has express authority to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare, with no other qualifications than that all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States, that no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to numbers ascertained by a census or enumeration taken on the principles prescribed in the Constitution, and that no tax or duty shall be laid on articles exported from any state. These three qualifications accepted. The power to raise money is plenary and indefinite, and the objects to which it may be appropriated are no less comprehensive than the payment of the public debts and the providing for the common defense and general welfare. The terms general welfare were doubtless intended to signify more than was expressed or imported uh, in those which pre uh, preceded. Otherwise, numerous exigencies incident to the affairs of the nation would have been left without a provision. The phrase is as comprehensive as any that could have been used, because it was not fit that the constitutional authority of the Union to appropriate its revenues should uh, have been restricted within narrower limits than the general welfare, and because this necessarily embraces a vast ver uh, variety of particulars, which are susceptible neither of specification nor of definition. It is therefore of necessity left to the discretion of the national legislature to pronounce upon the objects which concern the general welfare and for which under that description an appropriation of money is requisite and proper. And there seems to be no room for a doubt that whatever concerns the general interests of learning, of agriculture, of manufactures, and of commerce are within the, uh, the sphere of the national councils as far as regards an application of money. The timing is significant. Ten days later, the last required state ratified the Bill of Rights. Hamilton was unlikely to be ignorant of these amendments. Certainly, he would not have been ignorant of Madison's comments about the general welfare in the Federalist Number 41. And yet, here he was on December 5, 1789, making this claim that there was no such thing as limited enumerated powers in the Constitution, and that instead, 
the federal government had been granted a plenary uh, had been granted plenary powers as long as the official could claim that a general welfare was involved. Giving a loaded gun to a baby would be less dangerous. Wikipedia's summary of the report on uh, manufacturers states. It laid forth economic principles rooted in both the mercantilist system of Elizabeth I England and the practices of Jean-Baptiste Colbert of France. The main ideas of the report would later be incorporated into the American System program by U.S. Senator Henry Clay of Kentucky and his Whig part uh, and partner, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who called himself a Henry Clay tariff Whig during his early years. Did Americans really endure an eight-year war on their soil in order to replace a British mercantilist system with one of their own? Not according to Barbara Tuckman, as she told the story of the causes of the War of Independence in the March of Folly. Part four of that book describes a reaction by the colonists to the British system of mercantilism. Three specific ideas were promoted in the report on manufacturers. One, tariffs to protect infant industries from foreign competition. Two, bounties or subsidies to certain manufacturers. And three, internal improvements such as roads and canals to facilitate commerce. None of these was really general welfare in the sense that general welfare should benefit all citizens not specific classes of citizens. Tariffs penalize certain groups of consumers, although they are specifically authorized by Article 1, Section 8, and prohibited to the states by Article 1, Section 10. Let's return to the Supreme Court's fundamental findings that the city's proposed disposition of petitioners' property qualifies as a public use within the meaning of the takings clause. More specifically, it was the court's opinion that the takings at issue here would be executed pursuant to a carefully considered development plan, which was not adopted to benefit a particular class of identify, identifiable individuals. The majority opinion was written by Justice John Paul Stevens, joined by Justices Anthony Kennedy David Souter, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Stephen Breyer. Among the rationalizations for these seizures was the idea, the city's determination that the area at issue was sufficiently distressed to justify a program of economic rejuvenation is entitled to deference. The city has carefully formulated a development plan that it believes will provide appreciable benefits to the community, including, but not limited to, new jobs and increased tax revenue. As with other exercises in urban planning and development, the city is trying to coordinate a variety of commercial, residential, and recreational land uses with the hope that they will form a whole greater than the sum of the parts. To effectuate this plan, the city has invoked a state statute that specifically authorizes the use of eminent domain to promote economic development. Justice O'Connor, issuing the dissenting opinion, 
joined by Chief Justice Rehnquist, Justice Scalia, and Justice Thomas, said, Any property may now be taken for the benefit of another private party, but the fallout from this decision will not be random. The beneficiaries are likely to be those citizens with disproportionate influence and power in the political process, including large corporations and development firms. Justice Thomas added, This deferential shift in phraseology enables the court to hold against all common sense that a costly urban renewal project whose stated purposes is a vague promise of new jobs and increased tax revenue, but which is also suspicious, suspiciously agreeable to the Pfizer Corporation, is for public use. Consider this statement in the majority opinion. The city's determination that the area at issue was sufficiently distressed to justify a program of economic juvenation is entitled to deference. The implication of that statement is that a governmental entity is always to be considered in the right in any action in which the contesting party is an individual. So much for the equal treatment under the law. In addition, the concept of private property was to be trashed in favor of government's arbitrary determination of what would increase its coffers more, never mind the incentives for corruption of public officials that theory implied. Did the city of New London's taking of Kilo's home benefit a particular class of in identifiable individuals? In the opinion of the Institute of Justice, it certainly did. New London created a redevelopment plan that gave land to Pfizer at a nominal cost and provided free environment cleanup at the site. The plan also called for redevelopment of an area called Fort Trumbull, a working-class neighborhood adjacent to the Pfizer headquarters. It housed approximately 70 to 80 homes, as well as a few small businesses and an abandoned Navy base. The plan called for this area to be replaced by an upscale hotel, office buildings, and new housing. This redevelopment area would complement the new Pfizer facility, leading to increased taxes and job growth for New London, or so the city promised. The state agreed to provide $78 million for the project. Pfizer received an 80% tax abatement for 10 years. Wikipedia reports on the outcome of the redevelopment project. Pfizer, whose employees were supposed to be the clientele of the Fort Trumbull redevelopment project, completed its merger with Wyeth, resulting in a consolidation of research facilities of the two companies. Pfizer chose to retain the Groton campus on the east side of the Thames River closing its new London facility in late 2010 with a loss of over 1,000 jobs. That is small compensation for the destruction of liberty caused by the Supreme Court of the United States in this case. Since Kilo versus the city of New London has not been overturned, the rule concerning the ownership of property is Whatever government wants, 
government takes. Oh, that is so sad. And and sad as we look at this case, uh, you know, Suzette Kilo was one of the holdouts, I think maybe the only final holdout. And she had often dreamed of owning a home that overlooked the water. And so she finally purchased and restored her little what they call a pink house because she painted it pink where the Thames River uh, meets the Long Island Sound. And she had neighbors who had been there for centuries. The Dairy family just up the street from Suzette had lived in Fort Trump since 1895. Matt Derry, one of her neighbors, his family lived next door to his mother and father. And Matt's mother was born in the house in 1918, and she'd never lived anywhere else until the city of New London evicted them by stealing their property. And I say stealing because essentially that's what I see Kilo v. New London saying, that you don't own property outright in America any longer is, is the message of Kilo. The fact is that you rent your property from the civil government. And, of course, the rent they call property tax, and you don't pay your property tax. And, of course, they're going to come and take your property very quickly, and they're going to sell it to whoever will agree to pay the rent from the government that they call property tax. But Kilo v. New London makes it even worse than that by basically saying that if the civil government believes, like the city of New London, believes they have a better use for your property than you are currently using it for, they can kick you off the property, give you whatever they think is a valid payment, whatever they call a just payment. I don't think for Suzette Kilo it was going to be a just payment because she wanted to live where she had chosen to live. And she wanted to have that view of the water that she had dreamed about all of her life. She wanted to live there in that part of the city of New London uh, and pay her, her property taxes as demanded. But the city had turned over the Fort Trumbull area to something called the New London Development Corporation, which is a private body. It was not a public body, a private body. And that private body was given the power to take the entire neighborhood for private development. And so the the folks who lived in that Fort Trumbull uh, community, they found out this. When private entities wield government's awesome power of eminent domain. They can take your property with any nebulous claim of economic development. And the result is that all homeowners are in deep trouble. So the Supreme Court case, Kilo v. New London, made it much, much easier for civil governments across the United States to abuse the eminent domain clause of the Constitution. The eminent domain clause, uh, they misinterpreted. They twisted the interpretation, which the interpretation was originally, look, if the government needs to build a road and that road direction comes through your property, okay, they can declare eminent domain and take that portion of your property where the road is going to go through, or I think less justifiable if they need to put a school or, uh, you know, a fire station or other some other public building up, uh, I think there's less excuse even there for eminent domain. But you might, you know, I'd allow it in, in cases where road building might require uh, that. And I have a neighbor who uh, years ago when a major thoroughfare was being put in, not an interstate, but interstate like road in our area, uh, he was uh, removed from his property by eminent domain. And although he was paid, he recognized very clearly that some of his neighbors who were pit politically connected, and he was not politically connected, he got less money for his equal property than they did because the political connection meant that those people got paid better than he got paid. So we see that kind of corruption going on. And this was, I mean, this was like 40 years ago, this 
this happened, but he still remembers it because he rankled with the injustice of the government throwing him off his property and really not paying him a fair uh, price for that. And so the Supreme Court here has really reinterpreted that phrase and that idea of public purpose. That is, there must be something that's going to benefit the whole community. And then they've turned it to say, well, well, we expect some public benefits, particularly the public benefit that the city of New London is going to get greater tax revenue from taking over this property and handing it to a private developer. And that private developer builds hotels and all these other buildings that are going to uh, deliver more tax dollars to the city of New London, that is something that I think is just outrageous and egregious. And many people across America agree this is outrageous. And so there was actually a backlash to Kilo. Fortunately, we we could see that unprecedented and, by the way, bipartisan backlash to this Supreme Court ruling, because since that decision, 47 states in the union have strengthened their imminent domain laws to make it harder for the government to take your property. A dozen states have even gone further, and they've actually amended their state constitution to stop eminent domain for private development, which is exactly what you know was being done here in New London. They said, no, 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 the government can't do that. It can't take your property simply because it thinks somebody else can use that property to gain a greater tax revenue into the coffers of the city of New London. So a dozen states have done that. 11 states Supreme Courts have either either strengthened protections for property owners or even flat out rejected the decision Kilo. So at their state level, you know, Kilo and that that kind of ilk will not be allowed. And through uh, various organizations and activism, uh, Institute for Justice being one of them, teaming up with many local communities, they have helped save nearly 20,000 homes. And we're saying this is a date from 2022 looking back uh, to uh, Kilo v. New London and in uh, 2005, 20,000 homes and small businesses from condemnation are being labeled blighted. And notice what they did there. The city of New London said, we're going to rule Suzette Kilo and her neighbors a blighted section of community that needs to be redeveloped. And that's always a precursor to eminent domain. But Suzette, you know, her house was in good condition. Well, maybe there was some houses in the community that were not in pristine condition and had, you know, well-landscaped lawns or whatever. This is a, this is a blue-collar community. And actually, what we see here is that the rich are being given an advantage over the blue class, the middle, uh, the blue collar, middle class sort of folks in uh, that case. And so what happened to Suzette, her home was taken um, June 23rd, uh, 2005 is when the Supreme Court ruling was handed down. And so the city of New London uh, took the entire neighborhood where Suzette and her neighbors called home and and her and her neighbors, their lives were changed forever. You know, the family that had lived there since 1895 kicked out of their neighborhood, their neighborhood bulldozed and destroyed. It was never the same. And so this Supreme Court 5-4 ruling that the government could take and bulldoze your community simply because you weren't as wealthy and you're not going to give as much taxes to the city and that Fort Trumbull a community that was handed over for them to a private developer with the intent and the idea and the uh, actually, but not the actual commitment that they might, it was only that they might pay more taxes on the land. But actually, when you look at what happened, it, it failed in every way, shape and form. 
Suzette and her friends obviously moved out to other uh, towns, nearby towns, and and uh, interesting, her iconic house, her little pink house, actually, there's a movie on it, and so it's become iconic. The house was actually saved. It wasn't bulldozed. Uh, they dug it up and put it on a, on a trailer, and they moved it downtown New London, and you can see it there at the corner of Franklin Street uh, and Cottage Streets to this day. Uh, but the 20 years since that ruling, the entire Fort Trumbull neighborhood has remained a vacant lot after being bulldozed by the city. A neighborhood once teeming with families who resided there for generation upon generation is now only home to weeds and feral cats. The economic development the city promised the U.S. Supreme Court would materialize if only the government could get its hand on the land that never, ever materialized. Even after the city spent more than $80 million in taxpayer money. In other words, they didn't get any income from this this property that they destroyed. Instead, they spent 80, they wasted eighty million dollars in taxpayer money. As of May twenty twenty second, the private private developer is now constructing a, a ten one hundred high end apartments and a hundred unit extended stay hotel within that community that won't pay any taxes. Get that? It, the new development won't pay any taxes. So the homeowners and the residents were kicked out who were paying property tax. So a private developer could build more homes that won't pay taxes because they're given this tax break for so many years and so on. Pfizer, that uh, monster drug company who is part of the big evil that we have going on. Anyway, Pfizer received also major tax breaks to move into New London and establish a, uh, and, and they were the intended beneficiary of stealing the property of the people that were Suzette's neighbors. And uh, they received all these tax breaks for so many years, but they closed their new London facility just before the tax breaks ended. Wow. Look at that. They came in, they got tax breaks. In other words, the citizens of New London were disadvantaged against this major corporation who made all kinds of money. And just when the tax breaks ran out, that is, they were going to have to begin to pay taxes to the city of New London. They closed down their facility and moved across the river out of, of the city of New London. So a disaster in every way that you could conceive. And I'm pleased that so many states have recognized this is wrong. And I would pray that at one point the Supreme Court is going to recognize their error and they will accept the case, hear a case and overturn Kilo v. New London. Because indeed, I think it is one of the dirtiest of the dirty dozen. Well, Mike, what are your thoughts on this case? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. Ah, that old Pfizer plus government and greater good routine sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Somehow when there's money to be made, uh, the greater good is always the, the cause of that. And I think with this case, I want everyone to understand that we don't need to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, to discuss why it's so bad. And this is a situation where you don't want to get lost in the details and lose the forest from the trees, so to speak. In the court's opinion, it stated, quote, two polar propositions are perfectly clear. On the one hand, it has long been accepted that the sovereign may not take the property of A for the sole purpose of transferring it to another private property B, even though A is paid just compensation. On the other hand, it is equally clear that a state may transfer property from one private party to another if future use by the public, in quotes, is the purpose of the taking. The condemnation of land for a railroad with common carrier duties is a familiar example. Neither of these propositions, however, 
determines the disposition of this case, end quote. Now, I don't necessarily like the second scenario, and Pastor Whitney, you touched on that just a little bit. Uh, this is the situation where the state takes private property for use by the public, even if by the way of railroads, but that's a matter for a different discussion. And this issue is much more narrow, and it really comes down to a couple of words, as Phil thoroughly explained, public use. And the dissent laid this out perfectly, stating, quote, um, when interpreting the, the, the dissent laid this out perfectly, stating, quote, when interpreting the Constitution, we begin with the unremarkable presumption that every word in the document has independent meaning, that no word was unnecessarily used or needlessly added. In keeping with that presumption, we have read the Fifth Amendment's language to impose two distinct conditions on the exercise of eminent domain. The taking must be for a public use, and just compensation must be paid to the owner. Our cases have generally identified three categories of takings that comply with the public use requirement, though it is in the nature of the things that the boundaries between these categories are not always firm. Two are relatively straightforward and uncontroversial. First, the sovereign may transfer private property to public ownership, such as for a road, a hospital, or a military base. Second, the sovereign may transfer private property to private par parties, often common carriers, who make the property available for the public's use, such as with a railroad, a public utility, or a stadium. But public ownership and use by the public are sometimes too constricting and impractical ways to define the scope of the public use clause. Thus, we have allowed that in certain circumstances and to meet certain exigencies, takings that serve a public purpose also satisfy the Constitution, even if the property is destined for private use. For his part, Justice Kennedy suggests that the courts may divine, may divine illicit purpose by a careful review of the record and the process by which a legislature arrived at the decision to take without specifying what courts should look for in a case with different facts, how they will know if they have found it, and what to do if they do not. Whatever the details of Justice Kennedy's as-yet-undisclosed test, it is difficult to envision anyone but the stupid staffer failing it. The trouble with economic development takings is that the private benefit and incidental public benefit are, by definition, merged and mutually reinforcing. In this case, for example, any boon for Pfizer, where the plan's developer is difficult to disaggregate from the promised public gains in taxes and jobs. End quote. So the point is, when you stretch the principle as far as the court did in Kilo, the government can always find some kind of way to make it fit. The government will ultimately decide that they can take someone's property for the greater good, something that they think will be a better use than you, the rightful owner, using it for yourself. It reminds me of all kinds of tactics of dictators claiming that their actions are necessary for the greater good and they get people to buy into it. It also reminds me of Orwell books, where these tyrannical governments and societies convince people that the deprivation of liberty, for example, is good for the, it's really for their own good, and everyone is just doing their part. There's one quote in particular that stood out to me, and that's, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. You might think that this was a quote from a famous dictator or even from Orwell, but it's not. This quote is from Spock from Char Star Trek, written by Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Unfortunately, it seems to be the way the Supreme Court views the takings clause. 
That's that's tragic. But, you know, the illustration of how bad this can become if it's not stopped uh, was experienced by the, the fans of the Baltimore Colts here in Maryland. And this is a bit of history. This goes back to 1984. On March 29th, 1984, all Colts fans woke up to discover that their Baltimore Colts had left in the middle of the night. Basically taking the team to Indianapolis, becoming the Indianapolis Colts. And boy, the people in, I, I know Marylanders are still hopping mad about that. But most of them don't realize the reason why the Baltimore Colts left in the middle of the night is the legislature of Maryland was about to grant eminent domain so that the state essentially could steal the Baltimore Colts from its owner forcing the Colts to stay in Baltimore. It was an eminent domain case, another case of their attempting to steal property. In this case, the property was a NFL franchise, very different than, you know, Suzette Kilo's pink little house there uh, on, the, on the Thames River. No, but the whole idea of eminent domain is that the government has a better idea than you do for how to use your own property. So that's another application, the idea that you could steal an NFL franchise, but that was what was being attempted and had the Colts not left on the 29th of March, the legislature was about to vote the next day to declare eminent domain and a just taking of, of that NFL franchise from the owner of the Baltimore Colts. Uh, Pastor Reddy, I don't necessarily expect you to know the answer to this because, frankly, it's impressive that you know that little wrinkle that I've never heard. I know that story, but I've never heard that part of it. Because when I was looking at the case, I noticed that uh, it wasn't necessarily, I don't like to say party lines when it comes to the Supreme Court, but the, the justices you'd expect to vote more conservative versus more left uh, didn't exactly shake out that way. Do you know the political affiliations of who was voting to to oust the, the Baltimore Colts in that situation? Because if it were one party opposed to another, you would think that the opposing party would sort of hammer them on that and expose that to everybody. Say, hey, you know, you keep voting for these people. They got rid of your cults. And and the uh, the thing was covered up, really. I mean, it was there. If people dug, they could discover it was an eminent domain case. But the whole thing was stirred up of how dare that owner, Irsay, uh, uh, Bob Irsay was the owner. Uh, how dare he do that? He stole our – in other words, this whole state of Maryland said, wait a minute, those, those Colts belong to us. They're our football team. You can't just get up in the middle of the night. And so people were focused on their wrath against him and against the team for leaving Maryland, not recognizing that what was really happening in the background, the real controversy was the state legislature attempting to steal his team from him by eminent domain because, you know, he had been talking about maybe uh, moving and, and so on, but it was not decided. But they were planning to vote the next day to force the Colts to stay in Baltimore, basically taking control of the team away from the owner of the team. And he had acquired the Colts back in 72 uh, after buying the then L.A. Rams and trading them for the Colts that same day. But and, the, you know, back in those days, the Colts were a rather impressive franchise. I'm not so certain how it shakes out today. That's interesting. Uh, that's something that I would definitely want to dig in deeper because that's a part of the story that nobody ever hears. Yeah, yeah. 
And just a, a, another uh, idea about what happens with eminent domain, there's studies that have looked at the city of Baltimore and said, why has Baltimore been just such a disaster economically? And they've compared another city because an eminent domain was used extensively in Baltimore to take people's property to do stupid things like, oh, we're going to tear down your house and put up a parking lot, that kind of thing. Uh, but they compared it a similar size city to San Francisco where San Francisco has prospered and gone on and been, you know, relatively successful, though politically accessible, but that's another story. And they've discovered that San Francisco did not do eminent domain. They used it very, very rarely. But because Baltimore eminent domain was used against people's property rights again and again and again and again, property owners got the clear message. We don't have security in owning property within the city of Baltimore, and therefore they fled. They sold their property, moved out to the suburbs, which might better protect their property rights than the city of Baltimore. Yeah, who's going to invest in any property and spend all that kind of money if you know you might get kicked out for whatever the market value is at the time, right? Because isn't that the way the property markets work is that they go up and down? So you might be at a point where, hey, I'm not ready to sell. I was looking to hold out for another few years and wait till we get an upswing. Indeed. And and so... The tragedy is that Baltimore as a city has lost out and it's a terror. I mean, murder capital of the country and, you know, vacant blocks and blocks of vacant buildings and just crime uh, through the roof and not a safe place. This summer, a guy was killed who was uh, unhappy with the squeegee. You know, the squeegee boys show up at your windshield without your permission, squirt on your windshield and then wash your windshield and demand payment for it. You know, it's kind of like, wait a minute, that's, uh, you know, that's not free enterprise. But anyway, this guy made the mistake of getting out of his car and accosting them and so forth. And he wound up getting shot five times in the back, uh, murdered. And then the, the prosecutor in the city of Baltimore wanted to plea bargain that whole thing and somehow say that, oh, you know, that's justifiable. Squeegee kids murdering people for their, oh, you know, that, all that's just. So Baltimore is a, a disaster in every way, shape or form. But part of that disaster that people don't understand is because Baltimore practiced eminent domain without any restraint, it appears, compared to a, a similar sized city like San Francisco over, over a period of 30 years. If I could add uh, a comment about uh, how much uh, this was oriented towards a political party, Uh, recall that the vote was never taken. And so as a result of that, anybody could deny that they were uh, for or against uh, the the, uh, seizure. Right. So, uh, uh, (laughs) and uh, let me just add that I think that if – if Republicans had seen an advantage, uh, they they would have been on board with the seizure. I don't, I don't see any difference between the two parties in this sense. I'm seeing they, something that says 38 to 4 to approve. The Maryland Senate voted 38 to 4 to approve legislation, which you got to imagine that there's a mix of both if it's 38 mm-hmm. to 4. I know yeah. that. You know, whoever has got power and had power in 1984, I don't think that it was the party line was 38 to 4. Right. Yeah, but and uh, didn't they have to go through the House of Representatives? Right. Uh, I'm sure that was yeah. the issue. Yeah, yeah. that was where but, I believe the next one chamber was overwhelming uh, with mixes yeah. of both parties. I'd say so. Right. The, that's, the moral of the story might be vote all of them out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was absolutely. probably what was going to happen the next day. The House of Delegates was going to vote after the Senate had already voted, and it's a handwriting on the wall sort of situation for the owner of that uh, that uh, NFL team. And what is just compensation anyway? 
I mean, I know from an economic standpoint that there is no such thing. Just compensation is arrived at by two uh, independent parties who voluntarily see an advantage to a transaction and they enter into that transaction. That is just compensation. But you can't you can't uh, identify a a price, let us say, and say that that's just until the the parties involved agree upon it. So there's yes. no way of of enforcing really just compensation. Uh, totally the, arbitrary. My my neighbor's case uh, where the highway was going to go through his property is a good illustration of that, because as soon as it became known in the community that the state was planning, the state highway commission was planning. You know, right down through their neighborhood, all of a sudden, what happened to their property values? <laughs> they plummeted. Nobody wanted to buy those properties because, you know, you knew the government was going to take them from you. And so they never got fair market value for their property because it was known what the government was, was planning to do in terms of eminent domain. So it impacted the fair market value because even if you had comparables at a different time, that's a different <laughs> at that point. You know, uh, the demand would have been different. And typically when we're looking at fair market value to make comps in the, the legal world, it's the willing buyer, willing seller, neither under compulsion. Well, you've certainly got people who are under compulsion yeah. <laughs> in these situations. So it wouldn't, it feels absolutely right. It doesn't shake out that way. Yeah. yeah consider all the people uh, who are aware of the so-called comparable value of their homes. How many, uh, Seeing that so-called comparable value, uh, bring in a real estate agent and say sell. Mm. Most yeah. of them do not. No, no, so that the so-called comparable value is less than the value that these individuals pay, place on their their residences. Mm-hmm. And there's always the political background that you you can't deny. I mean, a highway's chosen to go through a certain neighborhood. But, uh, well, maybe there's people in that neighborhood that are so politically connected that they can move the highway, you know, half a mile or whatever away so it doesn't go through their house. I mean, I look at what happened in Baltimore. Baltimore is one of the strange things that you got Interstate 70. And it starts out on the West Coast, crosses the entire country, and it ends after you hit the Beltway in Baltimore. Because the original design is that was going to go through whole sections of neighborhoods in Baltimore, and you'd be able to go downtown Baltimore using I-70. And that never was built because somebody in those neighborhoods had the political power to stop eminent domain from taking their property. But the people on the other side, (laughs) they were unfortunate enough that they didn't have that political connection. And eminent domain happened and their property was taken and I-70 was built. But it's very strange when you drive it, it, you pass the beltway and then you come to a stop. It's like, what? how come this highway? This makes no sense in terms of an interstate just to stop in the middle of a neighborhood. It's crazy. But that, that shows that it's all about who's connected politically and who has the control over those decisions. And sometimes it has uh, uh, just the reverse uh, kind of impact. For example, the Alaskan Bridge to Nowhere. I mean, <laughs> how much money was outlaid for that? Did, uh, you know, did anybody care about the the uh, the price of the, the land that was being seized and so forth. No, no, no. But the whole idea was uh, let's let's give these guys who build bridges uh, uh, a little subsidy here. So they built the bridge to nowhere. Mm, mm. And so the, the question is, should we allow 
any eminent domain and, and people argue, well, you know, we got to build a, a school. Well, you could place a school in some other place than, than taking somebody's house to do that. So probably the only argument that might have a weight is building a road. And an interesting thing, when you consider it, many people think that roads necessitate government involvement, that if the government doesn't build the roads, that you're never going to have a road system. But uh, our first interstate highway, so to speak, was created in private. It's Route 40 coming out of Baltimore. Route 40 was entirely private. It was built by private money. And it was a toll road where you paid a toll as you, you know, went from one property owner's piece of, of land to another property owner's. You paid a toll on each section of that that highway. And I mean, obviously, that could be done today electronically with a little box in your car that, you know, takes money out of an account and pays it to the private property ownership. But I've read economists who argue that you could actually have a good and perhaps a better road system if it was done by private ownership rather than uh, government control. The other illustration in that regard is the railroads. We would assume uh, railroads are going to require eminent domain. But the Northern Railroad, in contrast to most of the other railroads in America, did private land deals with people and it bought every uh, every mile where it built track, in contrast to the other railroads that used the government eminent domain to condemn people's land in order to take control of, of land where they were going to put the railroad. And Northern, Northern Railroad was successful. Wasn't anything, anything wrong with it. It worked well economically, again, arguing against the necessity of eminent domain. There's a case uh, uh, in the, the uh, Missouri area, western Missouri area, where uh, the question was, do we run the, the line through St. Joseph or Omaha, Nebraska? Well, Lincoln had purchased land in Omaha, Nebraska. Guess where the line went? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, little known fact about Lincoln's uh, profiteering, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, let me add something here about the, this concept. This is the second time we've run across the idea of deference. Um, the first time was in uh, Chevron USA versus Natural Resources uh, Council, um, and we we discussed that several weeks earlier. Uh, this is why bad Supreme Court um, findings must be overturned on a timely basis. Uh, we can look at Roe v. Wade, for example, which was obviously faulty and and finally was corrected on the uh, on the right uh, uh, lines. Um, it took forty nine years to overturn the opinion and how many lives were lost uh, during that period of time. I think there is a, a very, very casual attitude within the judicial system in particular and within the government in general about the need for overturning bad findings by the Supreme Court. Oh, good. Good point. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, that, that requires justices on the Supreme Court who recognize uh, the constitutional standards that have been violated by previous opinions and who are willing to accept the cases that would potentially be overturning uh, those bad decisions. It would be interesting, I think, to look back over uh, the uh, the bad decisions and uh, identify those who are in the majority in those bad decisions and see how many uh, bad decisions the individual was involved with. I won't name names, but uh, <laughs> but on the other hand, <laughs> there are some obvious obvious cases, and and I've seen the individual 
uh, involved that, that I have in mind uh, being absolutely revered by many people. Mm. I believe they referred to her as the notorious, right? <laughs> yeah, the notorious, yeah. <laughs> well, I, could, I could think of an example of, of uh, two cases within a year of each other that both uh, Brennan and Thurgood Marshall voted for. The first case was basically saying that this, you know, death penalty is unconstitutional because it violates the Eighth Amendment of cruel and unusual punishment, and therefore the death penalty should anyway should be abolished. Is essentially what Brennan and Marshall did in 1972. Uh, Furman v. Georgia. I- I might not have that case exactly right, but within a year, 1973, both of them were part of the Roe v. Wade decision that said you could execute a human being who is completely innocent. No, no question about whether they've committed a crime or not. They have not committed any crime in the womb. They're completely innocent, but we can kill them. So we can kill the innocent, they voted in 73. But in 72, they said, well, if a person's guilty of murder, eh, we really can't execute them. That's unconstitutional. Wow. <laughs> what hypocrisy and uh, uh, chicanery on the part of uh, Thurgood Marshall and uh, Brennan, Justice Brennan. Yeah, I think it's possible to rank uh, individual justices based upon whether they, they appear to be uh, driven by constitutional logic or whether they're driven by, um, let's say, uh, an ideology, an agenda. Uh, and I think you know, many of the, the bad cases that we have encountered uh, fall into the latter category. And I guess that's part of the, the design of our founders, that it was the Senate that was supposed to catch those type of uh, justices before they get on the court and say, no, 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 we look at your pattern of decisions that you've made and we look at your judicial philosophy and all of those things. And we, yeah, you're really not fit uh, for the high court. So we're, we're going to vote against you. But quite clearly, the, the Senate is no longer functioning in any way to uh, uh, guard us against those kind of uh, justices uh, coming to the Supreme Court. It's just been a, you know, a, a political grandstanding is what the uh, Senate confirmation hearings have become. And, and quite clearly, uh, as uh, Biden has threatened to pack the court, like uh, FDR threatened to pack the court, they only see the court as a political means by which they can achieve the ends that they're not able to achieve through Congress, through the legislative process. Yeah, that's that's correct. And I think uh, probably a turning point was uh, Robert Bork when he was being considered um, for the Supreme Court. And he was he was really uh, denounced because he was a constitutionalist. Mm -hmm. That was the the really the main argument against him. And so from this point forward, uh, the, uh, the Senate seems to be searching for somebody who is not one of those terrible constitutionalists, but who can, you know, go along with the times. Which means to uh, give all kinds of uh, court decisions that will abuse the God-given rights of the people instead of protect them and, and follow the Constitution. That, that seems to be the direction they're going, right? Yes. When the Senate's supposed to serve as that barrier, you got to remember that your Senate is only as good as your senators. <laughs> yeah. And sadly, because of the 17th Amendment, we no longer have senators who are answerable to their state legislature, which would be an additional check that, you know, before the 17th Amendment uh, was uh, an effective way to keep the Senate from being just a, uh, you know, an out of control body that they appear to be today. 
Well, this is We the People. The Constitution matters, and we invite you to join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. By the way, Mike has a show just before ours. Mike G. in the morning, The Law Matters. Encourage you, 7 o'clock a.m., WFYL, to check out his show. We also have each of our shows in, in podcast. If you go to 1180wfyl.com, click on podcast, and you'll see we're right down there at the very bottom of the screen. We the People, The Constitution Matters. We have shows for over five years now that are that are available there. We're a detailed analysis of our United States Constitution, detailed analysis of the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, subsequent amendments, and we just finished the Federalist, Anti-Federalist. Join us at We the People, the Constitution Matters, in turning our constitutional republic back to the standard of our founders.